This is Novel Approach, episode 12, for September 1st, 2022, with your host, James Soden, and special guest, Catherine Gordon. to Novel Approach, the podcast about creative writing. Each week we talk to guests who may be writers, editors, librarians, directors, or producers. I'm Jim Soden, the host for this podcast, and our goal is to talk with other people who love storytelling, whether in books, films, oral presentations, or other podcasts. We're really uh, pleased today my guest is Catherine Gordon, who is a professor of English at St. Louis Community College at Florissant Valley, uh, a local girl. She graduated from uh, University City High School, went on to an unknown uh, uh, college on the West Coast, Stanford University. Uh, is that right, Katie? That is correct. <laughs> and. <laughs> And then on for a PhD at uh, the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Now, did you do a master's um, at any of those places, or was that sort of rolled in to the PhD program at Glasgow? That's a really good question. So at, at Glasgow, it's one of the ancient universities. And so their first degree for undergraduates actually is a master's degree if you do four years as an undergrad. Um, mm -hmm. And if you do three, it's a bachelor's. Uh, so the assumption is you come in with a, a master's. I didn't have a master's before I did the PhD. So I had to work a lot harder to to make up some of the, the background information I needed because I was switching fields a little bit. And then when I finished the PhD a, a couple of years later, then I did an MFA um, in poetry. So I did it a little bit out of order, um, but it sort of all shakes out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in effect, you have two master's degrees, one that is rolled into that um, Glasgow experience, and then the one that you did here at uh, UMSL um, later on. Yeah, so they wouldn't count it what I did at, at Glasgow as a PhD and, an, and a master's, they probably would just say PhD. But um, if I had done my undergrad at Glasgow, then it would have been a master's if I'd done I it. see. So <laughs> they, a four-year degree there is, you know, our four-year degree plus a one-year master's. So right. they just put so. more into those four years. These ancient uh, universities are always a lot of fun. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So, um, one of the things that I wanted you to talk about um with uh, your experience there and then I guess following uh, is the book that you wrote about uh, two women uh, Scottish poets, uh, Marion Angus and uh, Violet Jacob. And the uh, title of your book was uh, Voices from Their Ein Country. Uh, and all the Scots listeners out there, please forgive me for slaughtering that uh <laughs> that title. <laughs> um, and the things that I'm interested in, Katie, uh, I know that uh, Angus wrote uh, principally in the 20s and 30s and mm -hmm. 1920s, 
and 30s, and that uh, Violet Jacob wrote from around the turn of the 20th century, 1900, uh, through the 20s. Um, she had a couple, yeah, she, her, she had worked during the later years of her life as well, but the, the main area of her publications were the early, maybe first 30 years of, of the 20th century. I know there was a collection of her works that uh, came out in uh, the 40s, but mm-hmm. it looked like that was a collection uh, that someone else had done pulling it all together. Is that correct? So she had, there were a couple of, of books that were gathered up by uh, uh, anthologies of their work um, after sort of not not ones that they had as much say over. So Violet Jacobs' book in, the, in 44 was the Scottish poems only, not um, the English language poems. Um, and for Marion Angus, she had, um, some collected in 37, uh, but again, not as extensively as as what I had wanted, which is why when I put together the collection that I did, uh, I wanted to make sure I had as much of their work as possible in one place because you just couldn't find it in one place. I had to dig all over the place trying to track down um, their writing. There'd be some in small magazines, there'd be some in their original publications, but then others that nobody knew where they were. And so, because they didn't keep records, at least not that I could access. Um, so I was running around doing archival work, which it was a bit like a detective story. You, you try to follow a clue and think, okay, this might potentially be the place um, where I'll find this lost text. And of course, that's the graduate student's dream, right? You know, you oh, think yes. you'll find, a, I mean, anyone's dream who does literature, right? I'll find that lost text that no one's seen for years. So that's always the hope. Did the library at uh, Glasgow have all of uh, the published books by both writers? No, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember where I sourced a lot of them. I was able to get a few of them of Jacob's books were more readily available. I could get them actually from some of Glasgow's wonderful used bookstores. Um, Marion Angus's were a little harder to track down just because there were fewer printed, at least from what I remember. Um, The library did have a good collection. And then I also had access to the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh, which was just a a joy um, to be able to go to the archive there um, and dig out not just the archive, but also just the the regular reference library. Mm-hmm. So, and then interestingly, there were also holdings in local libraries too. So, in Marion Angus's hometown, the local library had a whole section of her writing, um, which you know, because they some librarian there had been very adept or a very swift thinking at gathering up the materials. Um, was able to preserve those in one place. Oh, okay. Well, that's which was, good. Which was really good. So mm-hmm. that was a, a, a boon as well. But, you know, the research took me all over the place. I was at Sterling, University of Sterling, um, some down south in um, the British Library, but mostly in the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now, I guess the real question is, what drew you to these uh, two writers, and what uh, did you particularly like about them? So I, 
It's interesting. When I was contemplating what I wanted to study in graduate school, I was convinced that I would study English poets. Um, and I went and spoke to one of the librarians at Stanford in, in the British the British uh, air subject area librarian. He said, oh, no, you know, if you're interested in the 1920s and 30s, the Scottish poets are where you want to look. So he steered me towards um, towards first um, Hugh McDermott, who is more well known um, as as a kind of innovative writer from the 1920s and 30s, steered me towards his work. And Stanford did have a quite a good holdings, have good quite holdings of his work, including some that um, that hadn't been opened for a long time. <laughs> so I started digging through those. And then in the process of that and looking at the literary magazines that he had published in the 19, uh, the teens and the 20s, and uh, I found their work sort of tantalizingly um, included in some of these small literary productions that he had done. And he he was one of these kind of shape shifter writers where he would write um, under so many different pseudonyms. So you never were quite entirely sure whether it was him writing or, you know, one of his invented characters. Um, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but I do believe that at one point he actually reviewed his own work under two different names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> so that was also a bit of, of a look. So I, I came to their work sort of through that recommendation. And then as I started to read about them, I was intrigued by the way that they use Scots, um, which, you know, has, is spoken, of course, by by many people um, and is recorded in the literature for for you know years and years and years. They were trying to use it to describe uh, the world of the time using a combination of folk references and language more associated with folk literature, and then a, a kind of what I thought was a quite a modernist outlook on the world. And I was interested in that in that blend. Um, also, as someone who writes, I was intrigued by the way that they use language, because for me, the Scots was unfamiliar. So every word seems to have seemed to have a weight that I wanted to understand how it fitted together. So it was a uh, both a kind of academic puzzle and also uh, a creative puzzle to figure out how these poems manage to pull in this folk culture um, with something that seemed experimental and uh, and as I discovered, you know, quite groundbreaking at that time. So it was exciting for both those reasons. Okay, um, what? particular did you like about each of them individually uh, more the the themes that uh, they dealt with in this sort of cultural thing that you've described or uh, their technique uh, I, I know in looking at them um, I, I, and I I read the book uh, thoroughly when I first got it many years ago uh, <laughs> Bless you. I, in preparing for this, I went back and and reread some of the poems and and of course uh, some of of your uh, discussion about them. Um, but what it, you know, if you take Angus uh, for example, what uh, what are some of the specifics that uh, you really find um, or found at that time at least interesting and and uh, different. And and were these two 
uh, writers somewhat unknown or not as well known at the time you did your study? Do I recall that correctly? Yeah, that's yeah, that's correct. I mean, that people had well, for example, my my PhD supervisor had has done wonderful work on Violet Jacobs writing, and she had looked at both Jacobs fiction, which she's probably more well known for, um, and her poetry. So I was sort of following it in her footsteps. She did a lot of the groundwork for for me and was incredibly gracious at at guiding me towards uh, to resources that to, to talk to, where to look for things. Um, so she had been done yeoman's work and drawing attention to to Jacob's work and, and Angus um, to some extent as well. And then um, what I found was that there hadn't been as much work looking at the full scope of of all of Angus's work because she did also do some fiction um, as well as as the poetry that she, she was more known for. But she's she as a writer is much is a quiet kind of presence. She's not um uh putting her her writing forward she's uh, much more inclined to kind of take a side step um away from the limelight jacob is was also a very private person um but as somebody who had grown up um or had spent her married life uh with in in the army her husband was an army person um she developed a kind of uh I don't know what the word for it is, a presence that allowed her to to uh, perhaps make herself more known. Um, in terms of what I was what I was drawn to with Angus, I really love the, the strange, mysterious subject matter that she picks. Um, I don't know how familiar uh, listeners will be with the Scottish ballads, but the ballads are this collection of of originally songs telling about. Um, the fairies and ghosts and 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 in the stories that overlapped with the development of Christianity in Scotland, then the presence of the devil and and, and uh, people making choices about which which way to behave. So you know that that kind of storytelling in the ballads I find so interesting. She was pulling out a lot of that energy and a lot of the the strangeness of these sort of haunted landscapes. I I loved that the way that she would describe this landscape of the northeast of Scotland as a kind of haunted place um, that is not just what you see in the surface, but then also hundreds and hundreds of years of, of presences behind that. Um, so I found that really intriguing. <laughs> and it gave me an excuse to read the Scottish ballads, which is, is splendid. I, I wish uh, I had known this um before because I would have pulled out some of my uh, uh, Scottish folktale books and gone back over some of those things as as uh, preparation so that um, I could see how it fit with what she was doing with her uh, research and the things. I'm looking at the book now uh, with um, some of her poems and I, having gone through uh, some of them and preparation for today. Uh, one that caught my eye, especially, and I remembered was the wild lass. Yes. Um, and it, it's very interesting to um, get the, the story there. And it appears that what it is, is, um, I guess, people in the community talking about her. Well, and I think you you get a lot of of that 
that sense of the outsider negotiating um, what being an outsider means. Um, and I think a lot of the poems have this sympathy with, with the outsider, whoever it is. Um, and so this is sort of, a, it sounds, it reads like a, a lullaby to a woman who is, who is wild or who she describes as being um, translated into a, a, a beautiful, you know, hurt uh, soul who has been mistreated. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just such sympathy in the way that she writes, uh, not a judgmental kind of look, this person has wandered off away from what she was supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is, you know, according to whatever the dominant expectation is for for women, there's a real sensitivity and um, an appreciation for for people who maybe didn't fit into that whatever the the norm is for, um, especially for women. So there's definitely a sympathy there, um, which I found really appealing and also quite interesting because it's it's uh, it's very different from some of what you sometimes find in the kind of, of outsider's vision of Scottish literature as being, a, well, as often was popularized as these kind of wild creatures, wild, wild women who um, led people astray. You know? <laughs> um, and I mean, and that's the kind of the, the, um, the music hall kind of version of, of Scottish culture, not obviously what it actually was, but um, I think there's in Angus's poems, there's certainly a sympathy for that. And, and Jacob's to some extent as well, absolutely that sympathy for somebody who is a, a free spirit. But would never lead people astray, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think sometimes there's certainly a, um, a sense of a celebration of, of powerful female voices. Okay. And what about Jacob? Um, now, you said that um, she was probably somewhat better known for her stories. Um, but uh, what about her, her poetry? Um, and do, do you know what uh, some of the influences were? Since she was writing right after the turn of the century, uh, I'm not as familiar with uh, uh, Victorian era Scottish uh, poetry right at that period as as I am with the uh, the British but uh, the, what kinds of things was she able to draw on and or is hers uh, pretty much uh, based on Scotland itself and and the um, the stories and the fairies and uh, the culture and and so on so she has a really interesting mixture um, of, of influences. And I think one of the things that I found particularly fascinating is that she spent several years living in India. Um, her husband was, was stationed there and she was a most unconventional army wife where she was fascinated by the language and by particularly the landscape. And so she would go out to sketch and in order to be able to get out and sketch comfortably, she would dress in, in men's clothing. Because um, you can imagine the turn, of, the turn of the century or, you know, early 20th century women's clothing wasn't necessarily uh, the easiest for negotiating um, 
in foliage and sitting and sketching. So she would right. dress dress in, in male clothing um, to go sketch. And so she was this, you know, most um, unusual kind of character in, as she describes it in her diaries, a community of people who were trying to grow English plants in their gardens, you know, even though they weren't in an English landscape. Um, she was fascinated by the the landscape. So she would go out and sketch and her, some of her sketches actually are, are preserved. I believe they're at the Botanical Garden in Edinburgh now. Um, so she would, she was interested in the language. She was interested in, in that particular landscape where she was. Um, and then she was also interested in the Northeast. Now her family is, is a landed family based in the Northeast. Um, and so they had, you know, a family home, which, uh, she, she was sort of, because of the complications of, um, who the laird was, it didn't go down, um, her line, but she, um, she grew up in this environment of, you know, of privilege, but she was fascinated with the lives of the people who worked on the estate. So she, the story is that she would go out and ask all of the people who worked there for stories and for, for tales and for, um, their take on things. So she would take on the voice of, of laborers, in some of her poetry. Um, and again, not out of um, an effort to kind of belittle or make fun of, but I think to celebrate the experience that she saw of the people living around her. Um, and yet she also had this ability to, um, you know, what information she gave about herself, her, in her biography, she's makes sure that she mentions that she, her, her club in London which is the Ladies' Empire Club. So she had an interesting uh, way of balancing her her personas. But I think she also took some some guidance from earlier Scottish women's po Scottish women poets. Um, and there has been a tradition of women, especially from the aristocracy, who had free time <laughs> and had a little bit of protection um, mm -hmm. to, to write to capture their experience. Um, so she definitely pulled from that, but she also was someone who, you know, coming out of the Victorian period as she did, would have pulled influence from the English language poets. I mean, her earlier work is in English, um, with some Scots in it and it becomes more interested in the Scots language in her, some of her war poetry in particular. Looking at the, the two things that you've been talking about there in her, um, collection from uh, 1905 uh, there's a poem called the lowland plowman which would uh, tend to fit into the thing of looking at the the laborers and the the workers and so forth and then also a section called from poems of india yeah, now yes. did she have another book uh that was completely the poems of India and you included only a few of them here or, you know, I believe that's how they were. I'm just trying to think now because that's curious, isn't it? It looks like maybe she did that. Yeah. I think that's how she, I think she had selected those from her. This is terrible that I'm not remembering right off the top of my head, but I believe that's how she had selected those uh -huh. um, because there seems to be a kind of, a shift at that point. She leaves India, um, and then, as far as I know, does not go back. I'm trying to recall, if she goes back at all. I don't think she does. And 
in addition to the uh, titles of the individual poems there from Poems of India, they're also numbered. And so she has two, three, four, five, seven, and nine. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent question. And you know what? I don't honestly remember. This is terrible. I don't recall. I'm going to have to look that up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Very good. I do not recall. Um, It makes both of them sound so interesting. Uh, And I suspect that they're the kinds of uh, writers, at least in this country, who rarely get examined uh, because uh, usually the course that you would take courses perhaps would be uh, strictly British literature. And they might include, you know, um, one or two major poems by other writers. But um, uh, before I read your book, I had never run across either one of them. And they're delightful. Well, I'm so glad you think so, because I I do as well. And my frustration was that you would open up an anthology and it would have, if they had anything by them, it would be one poem and it would be the same poem or maybe the same two poems. And you just didn't get a sense for their scope. And it it, for me, it was exasperating because it gave the sense that uh, that was their one hit wonder and if they were even mentioned. And so as I was looking over this, I realized in the process of doing the research, there are others out there like this whose work has not been appreciated as much. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting when they come back into fashion because now their work is taught, at least in the Scottish universities. Um, But someone like um, the wonderful writer, Nan Shepard, who is someone that Marion Angus championed and, and really appreciated, her work was again, sort of come into, greater prominence now because other writers are drawing attention to her work. So the um, English writer Robert McFarlane has spent a lot of effort bringing Nan Shepard's writing about landscape into prominence. And now suddenly she's available on Amazon, (laughs) (laughs) um, which, you know, and years ago, you you know, I, when I was looking for Nan Shepard's work many years ago, um, I'd check all the used bookstores and it was very difficult to track anything down by her. Whereas now you can get any number of publications of, of hers, which is great. So it, it's, I, for me, that's one of the joys of scholarship is, is find re, rediscovering people whose work perhaps has not been given the due that it, it deserves. So that's exciting. It also means there's always more work to do. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things that I had mentioned to you that I wanted to ask you about, um, since so many of the writers that I know uh, nowadays have difficulty getting their material published, and with the the shifts in uh, in publishing, where the big there are fewer of the big publishing houses uh, left. Uh, so many of the good ones from the past uh, are just gone now. And the ones that remain tend to uh, stick with uh, only the high level uh, writers that they know are going to make money for them. 
Absolutely. you know, so if you're Stephen King, you can get something published anywhere. But um, if you're not, if you're a beginning writer or maybe you have one or two books um, and they were with small publishing houses, then it's it's more difficult uh, to do it. Did you run into um, any kinds of difficulties uh, getting a book like this, which is both a, a scholarly uh, study and um, an anthology uh, published, yep. particularly in Scotland? So at the time, um I, you know, I was learning what all the different places are t- to to send things out, and I had wonderful support from both my supervisor uh, Carol Anderson, as well as um, other members of the department, in sort of steering me towards places they thought would be a good place, um, because the, th- the thesis was sort of was all of the research, and then the anthology. Uh, that, that I put together was sort of came out of that. Um, the Association for Scottish Literary Studies is a wonderful press that um, produces an annual volume and their mission is to make available Scottish writing to not just the academic community, but the wider public. Um, and they have been a, a really wonderful voice in the Scottish literature community for, for years. Um, and so when, um, it became possible for me to to even consider sending the manuscript to them. They were very gracious and working with me to make sure that it was in the right kind of format that would be accessible, um, but also have some material for people who were studying it um, at the university or, or otherwise. So it, they were wonderful at working with me. But at the time, you know, there I recall that there weren't as many places for people to publish. Now, I think there's been a greater swell of support for getting Scottish literature out there more widely available. And so smaller presses have been have been very good uh, about doing that. But I, I think Scotland has a, the added, um, the difference I think is that there's also a great sense of preserving national literature and celebrating national literature. And Scotland is is not an enormous country, but they have tremendous cultural resources. So trying to find a way to make those available, um, I'm sure there's the same pressures that they face anywhere with publishing is you have to be able to make a profit. <laughs> um, you have to be able to sell things that that people will want to buy. Um, but I think some of the academic presses are a little bit um, a little bit more free to publish books that wouldn't necessarily be uh, something you'd pick up in a casually in a bookshop (laughs) whereas you know something like cannon gate or blood axe um they do a wonderful variety of both scholarly texts as well as you know novels and poetry and the, the whole the whole shebang so i think there's some fantastic people out there in scottish publishing who are doing uh just really exciting work um but as, as you say, there's, I'm sure there are lots of people out there who are not published who, who should be, you know, and that's, I suppose the, what the internet makes possible is that people can get their work out there on the internet more readily than they could, you know, pre-internet. Um, but that also means you have to weed through a lot of things. That's true. That's true. <laughs> to know where to look. 
And the uh, Association of Scottish Literary Studies is uh, a part of or is somehow connected with um, the press at the University of Glasgow. So they are they're separate. They're they're based at the University of Glasgow, but they're their own entity. Um, and they they have also, in addition to publishing um, their annual volume, they also run a conference for schools, which is a way to encourage teachers um, in K through 12 and to some extent college to integrate Scottish literature into the curriculum. Um, and they also run an annual conference, which is fabulous um, with for academics of all of all stripes looking at Scottish literature, you know, by theme. So that's another thing that they do, which is really great. And they also produce, uh, at least in the past, they have um, guides for set texts for um, for universities. So like a guide to um, one of Liz Lockhead's plays, for example, so that teachers who are teaching uh, a text for the first time will have good information to work with. Ah, okay. Uh, so it's always, I haven't been able to go visit them for a while, but use, I used to go um, with a big bag and <laughs> and money <laughs> and pay them money to <laughs> take home whatever they had because it was always, always interesting. Well, and not only is the content of the, of your book um, extremely perceptive and valuable, but they did an excellent job uh, with the the book itself, with the printing and the binding. It's just a, a, a wonderful volume. And it's good to see that kind of care and, and interest um, nowadays when so many of the uh, things that you see are just not up to that standard. It was, I was so lucky to, to work with them. I mean, they were just, they did really so much to help. Um, and especially Duncan Jones, who uh, was, is in charge of the press and he, you know, he tracked down the image that he thought would work best for the cover. Um, I had all kinds of arcane ideas for what I thought the cover should look like and wisely he, <laughs> he suggested something that would, would work much better. Um, so he, he, he's someone who's just incredibly wise and um, was a great person to speak with, he and Marjorie Palmer McCulloch as well, um, who is who was an absolute powerhouse in Scottish literature. Um, okay. Well, I hope that um, our reader, our listeners have uh, enjoyed this uh, opportunity today to meet with um, Katie and Fortunately, she's going to be back with us next week and at that time is going to talk about uh, some of her own writing, uh, the stories and, and uh, poems uh, that, that she does. And so I want to uh, invite you back next week and to remind you that uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will subscribe. Our program notes uh, provide information about it. And, and uh, to remind you also that Novel Approach is brought to you by Bearhound 7 Productions, by the Something Different Network, and Uncommon Sense Radio 4.0, the podcast. And we thank you for listening today. Thanks.
thanks so much. That was so exciting. Thank you.